0: Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to The Haunted Collection with your host, writer, paranormal investigator, and haunted collector, Kevin Kane, back to entertain you with more scary stories. It's good to be back, and I made it back before the end of July, barely, but I'm back. I want to thank everyone out there who gave well wishes to my dad as he is recovering from his knee surgery a few weeks ago. It didn't take as long as I thought it might to uh, get him around, and uh, now I'm back to where I can do some recordings during the night while he's sleeping. So everything's going a little better now, and we hope it continues to. So before we get started with our episode, I want to invite you, like I always do, to visit my website, myhaunteddolls.com, and shop in the store, buy an autographed copy of one of my books today, and read some great ghost stories, uh, some supernatural novels, anything uh, I think there's something for everyone out there. So be sure to check that out. And you can follow the link on the shop site. Follow the link to my Redbubble store where you can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, home accessories, baseball caps, pet accessories. Just all kinds of things with my uh, my Haunted Dolls logo. And some of them have the... Uh, this podcast shows a logo with some pretty cool, creepy pictures. So please go check those out. Just go to myhaunteddolls.com. On the main page, you'll see a link to the Red Bubble. Or if you go to my shop on there, you can see the Red Bubble link as well up top. And also, while you're at it, go to my YouTube channel, My Haunted Dolls, and be sure to like and subscribe. Like the videos, subscribe, click the bell for notifications. We need some more watch hours out there so we can get that sucker monetized. So please get on out there and watch. And now let's get on with our episode with some creepy, dangerous ghost tales tonight. Two of them, in fact. And I hope you enjoy them. I've read these before and liked them and... I uh, hope you'll like them, too. This first one is uh, about a haunted object. In fact, it's a very large object. It's a haunted car. Lots of legends about haunted cars. So let's delve into one now. The Death Car Returns. One of the most widely told ghost tales in America is one that folklorists call the Death Car. The core of the story is that there is a car haunted by the ghost of a gangster, or a celebrity actor, or someone else who had once owned the car and was killed in it either by murder or by car accident. But here are a couple of lesser-known variations of this popular tale. During the Prohibition era, that was there was a Chicago gang leader called Red Halloran. He had a lot of money, but he also had a lot of enemies on both sides of the law. He had a car custom-built for himself. It was a huge, powerful 16-cylinder car, faster than anything else on the road, and it was completely bulletproof. Well, almost completely. One day, when Red was driving all by himself, just outside of Chicago, he ran into a police ambush. The armor on his car did not protect him, and he was shot to death. Somehow, the gangster's magnificent car wound up with an auto dealer in New York State. Then, it was purchased by a man who lived in California and collected fancy cars. Normally, someone would be hired to drive the car cross-country, but the history of this car was well known, and it had a bad reputation. None of the men who usually did cross-country driving wanted to spend several days in this particular car. Finally, the dealer found a newspaper reporter who had just lost his job and wanted badly to go to California to find a new one. He was given $100 plus expenses to make the trip. But the mechanics at the garage where he picked up the car told him he would never get it past Chicago. The reporter paid no attention to such superstitious fears. In order to save the money that he otherwise would have spent on motel rooms, the reporter decided to sleep in the car during the trip. It was certainly big enough. The first part of the trip was uneventful. The car behaved exactly as an expensive car should. Somewhere in Illinois, the reporter began to get sleepy again. He pulled over onto a side road, locked the doors, and took a nap. He was rudely awakened by a sudden motion of the car. It was being driven at top speed by a muscular, red-headed man whom he had never seen before and who would not even acknowledge his presence. The red-headed man just kept whistling Yankee Doodle and driving at top speed. After a few miles, during which the reporter was growing increasingly panicky, He saw that there were police cars with flashing lights on the roadside ahead. Instead of slowing, the car actually speeded up and whizzed past the police, completely ignoring their signals to stop. That's when the police started shooting. The reporter was shocked into action he reached over to the driver's side. With one hand, he grabbed the wheel. With the other, he turned off the ignition. The car coughed, slowed, and then stopped. And the reporter realized that he was all alone inside. The red-headed man had disappeared. When the reporter tried to explain to the police what had taken place, he realized just how thin the story sounded. He fully expected to be arrested. But a couple of the officers had actually seen two figures in the car. And when they heard the reporter's description of the mysterious driver, they all knew why he had disappeared. They had set up their roadblock in the same spot where police, a few years before, had shot the notorious Red Halloran while trying to run a similar roadblock. The police told the reporter he was free to go, but that he should forget what had happened because no one was going to believe him anyway. Then they went back to waiting for the stolen car they had been looking for in the first place. In the next story, in 1960, 17-year-old Janet Hernandez bought her first car, a second-hand 1954 Ford Victoria. It was a great bargain at only $275. While polishing the car, something the owner of his or her first car does often, she noticed that three round holes in the passenger side door had been patched. Someone had done a good job of patching because the holes were not visible at a casual glance. But up close, they were obvious. Janet thought that the holes looked like bullet holes, and she imagined that someone riding in the car had been shot, and that was why the car had been so cheap. But the car ran fine and it looked great, so she didn't worry about its history. At least she didn't worry until things started happening. She tells this story, quote: "While we were riding around the block on one of our first outings in the car, the vehicle's passenger door flew open." We didn't think much of it, and took the car to the garage for repair. The mechanic could not find anything wrong, but later the door kept flying open. I told Dad and he checked the door catch over again, but still could find nothing wrong. Yet no one thought too much about this peculiarity until the door began flying open when the car was going 40 miles per hour or more. That was beginning to get dangerous, and it seemed to happen whenever the car was driven past a cemetery, though it didn't seem to make any difference which cemetery. Now Janet realized that something strange was going on. She took the car in for an oil change. While the car was up on the lift, the mechanic noticed that the exhaust system was being held on by wires. Something had very definitely happened to the car. Our bargain was turning into a real mystery, said Janet. The mechanic replaced the wires with clamps, and Janet took the car out for a spin. This time, the passenger side door flew open while the car was going 50 miles per hour. "'Have you ever tried to push a door open at that speed?' Janet asked. "'Pretty difficult.' Janet decided that her car was haunted by someone who had been killed in a shootout. She also decided that she did not want a haunted car and was going to sell this one at the first opportunity. In the meantime, her father secured the passenger side door with a strong rope. As Janet was driving past a little church near the center of town, the rope snapped and the door flew open once again. A cemetery was located behind that church. An hour later, she was able to sell the car for $650. She never said anything about the car being haunted and she was able to make money on the deal. And better yet, she never heard any more about the 1954 Ford. Perhaps, she said, the ghost had its last ride. Those were some pretty great stories about haunted vehicles. Next time you're out buying or shopping for a used car, you might want to check the history, especially if anyone has died inside it. You never know that you might be driving off with a ghost inside. And now for another story, this one involving... Another item that uh, just may or may not be cursed, but it certainly was helpful in this case. This story is called, The Bloodstone Ring. People have always been fascinated by stories of brides who disappeared mysteriously on their wedding day. In fact, the story of the bride who was playing hide-and-seek on her wedding day and goes missing in a trunk, locking herself in to her doom, has been very famous throughout the world. But there are others that aren't quite as heard of. Here is one such account in which the missing bride may actually have come back. Well, sort of. In the 1870s, Mrs. Elizabeth Grey was a well-to-do widow who lived with her two young daughters in the fashionable English resort village of Boscombe near the sea. The girls, Mary and Ellen, were very close to each other, more like twins, some people said, than just sisters. But they did not look like twins. Mary, who was two years younger than Ellen, was prettier, livelier, and by far the more popular of the two. There was always a crowd of young men hanging around her, and it seemed that they all wanted to marry her. Mary relished the attention and the flattery but she put off all her would-be suitors by telling them that she was too young to be thinking seriously about marriage, and that was the truth. But there was one persistent and rather dour fellow named John Bodneys who simply could not be put off so easily. He was 23 years old, Some six years older than Mary. As the son of a successful lawyer who seemed destined for a successful career in law himself, he was what most would have considered a good catch. And there was no doubt that he loved Mary. Indeed, it might even have been said that he was obsessed by her. And that was the problem for Bodney's constant pressing irritated Mary. One day, he insisted that she tell him if she would marry him. When she once again said that she was simply too young to make up her mind, he said, "'Mary, you must give me an answer. "'I'll wait a year if you like, "'until you're eighteen, "'old enough to know your own mind.'" Oh, very well, she answered carelessly. I suppose you may ask me again then, but don't shout so, or look so black, or you'll frighten me, and I won't answer you at all. During the next year, Mary did indeed change. She became quieter and more serious. Bodneys took this as a sign that she was growing up and that a more mature Mary would certainly say yes to his proposal. Bodney's was partly correct. Mary had become more mature, and she had decided on her future husband, but he was not John Bodney's. She had met a young man named Basil Osborne, a newcomer to the area, and had fallen in love with him immediately. Osborne was to turn 21 the week before Mary had her 18th birthday, and the couple decided to hold off announcing their engagement until then. Mary's mother urged her to tell Bodneys of her engagement before it was announced publicly. If everybody else knew first he might be humiliated. But Mary said no, the engagement was a secret, and she did not want to spoil it. Besides, she would be telling him before her 18th birthday was over, and at least technically she would have kept her promise. In truth, she didn't really care much one way or the other. The morning after the couple announced their plans at a large party, Mary sat down and wrote John Bodneys a brief letter explaining her decision. She received no reply. At one point, Mary's sister Ellen thought she had spotted Bodneys in the woods near the house, but she could not be sure. The incident was completely forgotten in the preparations for the wedding, which was just weeks away. After the wedding, there was a simple reception held at the home of Mary's mother. As the reception was ending, Mary went upstairs to her room to change out of her wedding dress into traveling clothes in preparation for her honeymoon trip. Her sister accompanied her to the room, but Mary said that she wanted a few minutes alone to say goodbye to the room in which she had grown up. It held many happy memories, and now she would be leaving it forever. "'I'll call you when I'm ready,' said Mary. "'I won't be long.' Ellen looked back and saw her sister still in her bridal gown, standing by the window. It was the last time anyone ever saw Mary alive. The wedding party waited downstairs for about half an hour for Mary to come down. When she did not, Ellen went upstairs to fetch her. But the door to the bedroom was locked, and when she called to Mary, there was no answer. After Ellen told the wedding party downstairs about the locked door, Basil determined to break the door down. With the assistance of some of the young men at the party, this was swiftly accomplished. The room was empty. Mary's traveling clothes were still laid out neatly on the bed. It looked as if Mary were getting ready to change into them. The missing bride was not on the balcony, but on the flight of small steps that led from the balcony to the garden below, searchers found a white rose that the bride had worn on her dress during the wedding ceremony the surrounding countryside was searched no trace of Mary was found searches were made at the railway stations and the ports surely a young woman wearing a wedding dress would have been noticed by someone but no one came forward advertisements were placed in all the newspapers but there were no believable responses Local people were divided as to what they thought had happened. Some were sure that Mary had suffered a brainstorm, which was a Victorian term that meant suddenly going crazy, as a result of the stresses of the wedding, and had rushed to the sea, which was not too far off, and drowned herself. Suicide. Others, remembering the young woman's many suitors, suggested she had a secret lover and had run off with him. If so, he was not John Bodney's, for John remained at home, a silent and unapproachable man. Some months later he went abroad and was not seen again in the neighborhood. Years passed, but Mary's tragic disappearance continued to take its toll. Mrs. Gray died just a few years after her daughter vanished. Basil Osborne did not remarry, even after Mary had been missing long enough to be officially declared dead. He lived on in the house that he had once expected to share with his bride and he became something of a recluse. His health suffered, and he too died within a few years. Only Ellen remained. She stayed at the house where she and her sister had grown up. She became increasingly strange, and the few people who visited her wondered if she were not a little mad. Her only regular companion was one servant, named Maggie Williams, who had grown up with the sisters and had been devoted to them. A little more than eighteen years after the disappearance, there was a great coastal storm. Fishing boats were swamped, roofs were blown off, and of course many ancient trees were uprooted. One of them was a huge oak tree that had stood near the top of a cliff. When it fell, it brought down a lot of rocks and boulders, and the debris completely blocked the road. Workmen were sent to clear the road, and while they were digging, one of them peered into a cleft between two large rocks. He saw something red and shiny, surrounded by what at first looked like whitish twigs. But when the rocks were moved, he found that what he had seen was a ring with a red stone in it, and what had looked like twigs were the bones of a human hand. More searching revealed the entire skeleton a rather dainty one, probably that of a young woman. There were a few scattered bits of cloth clinging to the bones, but not enough to clearly identify any article of clothing. But the red stone ring, which turned out to be garnet, or bloodstone, and a second ring, which was a wedding band that was worn on the same finger, were enough to provide an identification. As soon as the remains were brought to the village, one of the older residents who had attended the wedding reception 18 years before said that it must be poor Mary Osborne. Ellen was sent for She arrived at the police station wearing black, as she always had since her sister vanished. She examined the remains and said, "'That is the garnet engagement ring she wore on her wedding day. "'It is indeed my sister.' Shortly before the remains were to be buried, Ellen made a request of the undertaker. She wanted her sister's hand, the one that contained the rings.' The undertaker was surprised by such a request, but not as shocked as a modern undertaker might be. In Victorian times, it was not uncommon to keep relics of the dead, usually something like a lock of hair. The bones of a hand were unusual, but he could see no valid reason for refusing the request. So Ellen was given the skeletal hand. Ellen kept the skeleton hand with its rings displayed on a black velvet cushion in a glass box. The minister's wife, one of her few visitors, was horrified by the grisly trophy, which she regarded as blasphemous. She was afraid to talk directly to Ellen, whom she now regarded as completely mad. But she did protest to the servant Maggie, "'It won't do you no good, ma'am,' said Maggie. "'She's set on keeping it, and I'm not to have it when she's gone.' "'Certainly,' said the minister's wife to the servant, "'she would not keep the gruesome thing, "'but would have the hand decently reburied.' "'Oh, never, ma'am,' replied Maggie. "'She says she'll walk if I do, and I don't want no haunting.' Ellen died a little more than a year after the discovery of her sister's remains. Just hours before Ellen died, Maggie questioned her mistress once again about keeping the hand. Well, I can't see what good it'll do, ma'am. To her, that's gone. One day it will avenge her, Maggie, the dying woman said. I cannot tell you how, but I know this to be true. Ellen Gray left most of her money to her faithful servant. Maggie now had enough to buy a small pub that she could run by herself. She had the place completely renovated. Prominently displayed on the bar was the glass case with the skeleton hand. Maggie remained true to her vow. Besides, she was a shrewd businesswoman and figured the grisly relic, which was now well known in the area, would attract some customers. And she was quite right. Hardly a night went by when a customer did not comment on it. The story of Mary's disappearance was told and retold endlessly to newcomers at the pub. One evening, while a storm was raging outside, one of the pub's regulars began to reminisce loudly. It was on a night like this when the great oak came down. Maybe they'd never have found the skeleton but for that. A tall man, whose face was half-hidden by his turned-up collar and pulled-down cap, had been drinking at the far corner of the bar. He was a stranger, not one of the regulars, and he suddenly spoke up. What skeleton? Why, that skeleton, said Maggie from behind the bar, and she pointed to the skeleton hand in the glass case. Don't you know the story? The stranger did not say anything. He stared at the glass box. Then he went over to it and put his hand on top of the box. Some in the bar swore that blood began to flow from his fingers. Everyone saw that he crumpled to the floor. Two men took him to a bench, took off his cap, and loosened his collar. When the man's face was fully revealed... Maggie realized that it was a familiar one, though she had not seen it in nearly twenty years. "'Mr. Bodneys!' she said. "'Yes, I'm John Bodneys. "'I never meant to come back here, but I had to. "'Something drew me like a magnet. "'You killed her? You killed Mary?' "'Yes.' I killed her. Bodneys then went on to tell the story of what happened. How he had waited in the woods near the house. How, mad with jealousy, he had climbed into Mary's room when he saw her at the window and confronted her. How he had struck her unconscious and carried her off when she refused to go with him and how she had regained consciousness and struggled free on the path near the waterfall. Finally, he described how she stumbled and fell down between the rocks. He ran away, not knowing if she were dead or alive, though he later learned of her death. He told the story completely and without hesitation. As if he had repeated it hundreds of times before. And he had, but until then only to himself. I have been in hell these many years. I know they'll hang me as I deserve. But he didn't hang. He died, though no one could determine the cause, shortly before he was brought to trial. Maggie had the hand with its rings buried with the rest of Mary's remains. As her sister had said, it had done its avenging work and now could rest eternally. A very good story Kind of long but very good Very creepy Vengeance from the beyond the grave Although it was kind of a little bit more swift Than I would have liked to have seen <laughs> But hey It's still a good ghost story And sort of a different take on the Missing bride legend Is it true? Was there really The remains of a hand Sitting in a glass case Inside a bar there in England, who really knows for sure, but perhaps there is some truth to it. And now that brings us to a close of this episode. Again, please be sure to check out myhaunteddolls.com. Follow the links there to shop in my store, the Red Bubble store. Go to my YouTube channel and please be sure to follow and watch the videos. And I hope you find those entertaining as much as this storytelling I do. At least I hope I'm entertaining you, and I hope that you're enjoying it. So I'll be back next month in August to bring some more chilling stories of my picking. Until then, please be respectful of those spirits that might be around you. Be sure to lock those doors and windows and say your prayers at night. But by all means... Have a happy haunting.